0: And there's over 3 million Americans that have this disease. In the United States, it took up to 10 years average to uh, be diagnosed with this. But yet, if you were over in Italy, it took the time between you presented with the symptoms, you know, and went to your doctor. It took two to three weeks. It was like light years.
1: Hi friends, this is Read and Write with Natasha podcast. My name is Natasha Tynes and I'm an author and a journalist. In this channel, I talk about the writing life, review books, and interview authors. Hope you enjoy the journey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Read and Write with Natasha. Uh, today, I am very happy to have with me uh, author uh, Margaret Mary O'Connor. Margaret has been called the modern-day David on many occasions. On a mission to reveal carefully guarded secrets of the Catholic Church, she unveils the truth through her, her well-researched writings. She is author of Scandal in the Shadow and The Journey of a Celiac Soul. Margaret Mary is a force to be reckoned with so margaret i'm so happy uh we're here to chat and i have a lot of questions about you about the book about your writing journey so without further ado i'm gonna give you the floor and i just want to ask you about the book here that i enjoyed and uh you thankfully sent it to me and it's called journey of a celiac soul and you can tell us uh, what is this book about, how did you decide to write it, and the publishing journey in in general.
0: So Certainly, but first of all, Nastasha, thank you very much for having me on. It's, It's really a pleasure. The book that you just saw there shows a dove, and unless you really look at it closely, you will see the host, the communion host. And my book deals with not only the physical side of an autoimmune disease, but as well Uh, in this case, the spiritual side uh, of one's religion. And it's called Journey of a Celiac Soul, S-O-U-L, A Second Chance at Life. And it's basically my journey living 20 years with an undiagnosed autoimmune disease called celiac disease. And I wrote it not only for individuals that live with this disease, but as well, more importantly, for their family members or friends that just can't seem to get a hold on what this disease is all about. And I think, Natasha, if I took a survey of hands, if I could see the listeners' hands, And would ask them, what do you think celiac disease is? Unfortunately, many would say, oh, that's that fad diet. And the confusion comes in because it's called a celiac diet. And of course, what do we associate with the word diet? We associate weight loss. Okay, very briefly, if you have this disease and you eat anything made from wheat, flour, what happens? Your body sees it like an invader and they develop like a response against it. And this uh, immune response basically ends up tearing away at your own intestinal lining. And being a person with celiac disease, you can eat and eat. I'm talking about great amount of food and yet the value content of minerals, vitamins, None of that is being absorbed. So, what's happening within your body? It's called malabsorption. Uh, Your body is basically starving. And I'll tell you from personal experience, that is no fun way uh, to lose weight. But this diet is there to help save your life. And that's why I can't say enough you have to realize that this is an autoimmune disease and it's nothing to do with the fad because we basically are at the mercy of a restaurant owner, their staff, that when we ask questions about our food, we don't want to be poo-pooed like, oh, that's not going to hurt you. And then even going back to family members, when you think of it, I mean, what is more natural if you've lived all your life and you've a Taken in wheat—that's the bread of our life, in a sense. Well, then, how of a sudden can that flour be basically life-threatening to you? And and that's really this whole issue is that we have to stay away from wheat. And obviously, that's that's easier said than done. But okay, what does that mean when you get a call from your doctor? I got a call from my doctor. And he said, Now, Margaret, you will never, ever again be able to eat your regular breakfast foods, your toast, your bagels, your waffles, your French toast, your pancakes, your donuts. And then he went to lunchtime. Soups have fillers in them. And again, bread, whether it's white bread, wheat bread, Italian bread, rye bread, pumpernickel bread. And then we move down to dinner and your hot dogs, you have to watch out for the fillers in them. We can be in there. And then just your hot dog roll, your hamburger bun, anything, soy sauce. You have to watch in creamers what's there. Even in coffee, down to your little coffee pod. Where I live, we have uh, Wegman stores around, and they're wonderful. They list everything gluten-free, lactose-free, vegan-free. So it really helps. You're not reading every ingredient. But their coffee pods are gluten-free because what happens is if you don't have a distributor that you know that there's no wheat around or anything, wheat can get into your coffee. And um, we have a coffee, um it, I'm trying to think now, it's eluding me, Tim Hortons. They have delicious coffee. If you go into their restaurant, their regular coffee that you drink there is safe. But if you bought their uh, coffee uh pods, they aren't gluten-free. So there's just so many hiddens that you have to watch out for.
1: So, what? Why do you think it was important to tell your your story in in this book? Especially now, I think, as you mentioned, people with you know many people are you know eating gluten free diets, and as you said, people would just assume it's just a fad and it's not a life threatening disease. So, I want to know: is was that the reason that compelled you to tell your story, or? Or you wanted to focus on how it affected your faith. So I just
0: wanted to know what. The uh, it, well, like. it's it's physically how it affects me. But you know, getting back to celiac disease is one aspect of individuals not being able to have wheat. But then there's everyone else, even yourself sitting there. Perhaps you have a wheat sensitivity, yeah. and that's called non-gluten celiac uh, sensitivity. And there's uh, 21 million people that have that. And the thing that's bad in one way is if you have that, you normally don't feel the symptoms. Like if someone has celiac disease, you're going to definitely have alarm bells going off in your intestinal area. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if you've ever had awful food poisoning, or perhaps come down with some type of a, a stomach flu, you know what I'm talking about. So for celiacs, that's what they are experiencing. And it's just not the idea of, okay, I go out to a restaurant one evening and I take in gluten. It's just not that night that I'm experiencing that. The damage stays in one system anywhere from two to four months down Mm -hmm. the road. And it's that inflammation that's behind any autoimmune disease, whether it's celiac disease, whether it's arthritis, whether it's lupus disease, diabetes, and that's the hidden that you can't see the damage that's being done. And yet there was a wonderful doctor that, thank God, he came over from Italy, Natasha. He was um, a pediatric gastroenterologist. He started at the University of Virginia. Now he's at Mass General. But the research that he brought, when he was over in uh, Italy, he would see many children every week. When he got over here to the United States, they warned him, now, you're not going to see like celiac children like you do in Italy. Say, okay, one month went by, six months went by, a year, and he wrote a paper where are all the celiacs in the United States? And he was able to get from the Red Cross blood samples, but because of the confidentiality laws, unfortunately, he was not able to tell them you have celiac disease. Mm. And there's over three million Americans that have this disease in the United States. It took up to 10 years average to uh, be diagnosed with this. But yet, if you were over in Italy, it took the time between you presented with the symptoms, you know, and went to your doctor, it took two to three weeks. It was like light years uh, ahead. And um, the damage that you're talking about, I was within five months, my doctor told me of being six feet down in the ground. Oh, oh. Well. So I am just so wonderfully excited to still be here. Uh, but seriously, my sister had brain cancer. She never had a second chance. And this doctor, Alessio Fasano, says if you're diagnosed with the disease, the reason that you have to stay on what they call a celiac diet is because you will die slowly, but you will die. So you have to decide, and I think as an adult, it's it's pretty easy. I mean, it's very stark. Are you going to just keep cheating and eating what you used to eat, foods with wheat? Or are you going to stay off of that and then have um, um, a good life except for the times that you do ingest wheat? Mm. But with so- children, it's a whole other different thing because... The reason, again, I wanted to bring out to listeners here that don't have celiac disease, if you're a neighbor of someone that they have children that have this disease, again, you have to realize the damage that's being done within their system by having them over and you're thinking, oh, come on, just a little wheat, uh, just a chocolate chip cookie, that's not going (laughs) to hurt them. (laughs) You know, like be the devil.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That that's, that's interesting. And now I feel bad because my friend has celiac disease. And I said that maybe a few times, that's okay. You know, just a bite. And um, <laughs> now I understand that no, it just, just the bite is, 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 is problematic. Yes. I'm and- the
0: celiac police. <laughs>
1: yeah no but but that's that's you know a, a very valid point that you know there's a huge difference between gluten sensitivity and and you know a deadly uh, diagnosis uh, you know like like celiac disease and and for me i i want to go back to the book and do you think your message about the importance of recognizing diagnosing celiac disease was you know, sent through this book? And how did the readers react to it, especially that you tied in your own religion with your own diagnosis?
0: Well, it's really helped in a sense that way back, the actors and actresses, they were the first ones that got on this diet. And unfortunately, it gave it that fad diet, you know, thing, but it was the best thing in a sense, because then all of a sudden, your big food companies, your General Mills, they all, Pillsbury, they all started making celiac food. They didn't want to really help us. They they helped themselves. I mean, seriously, these yeah. these companies are millions of dollars. Yeah. and they can see hey this is a new source so for someone like myself it was a godsend because i'll tell you the first company <laughs> that i ever had their food oh my god the bread would just basically if you didn't toast it it would fall apart and you know we can laugh about that but it was pretty it was really sad now i'm trying to think the part about this is okay If I have this disease, obviously I know and I'm trying to impart, we have to watch out for the the damage it can do, life threatening damage. But what about your everyday life? What about the psychological perspective of it? We know when we, the worst loss in our life is the loss of a loved one. We lose a job or for some reason, we lose our car. We lose our house. Well, for a celiac, you've just lost your most universal enjoyment in your life is eating. And I was diagnosed when I was 38. So, I mean, every day I was just used to, in my cabinet, there would be Duncan Hines brownie (laughs) mix. There would be all these delicious mixes. And I remember getting off of the phone with that doctor and he told me, you know, about I wouldn't have this and that. And I happened to look over and there was a cabinet open and I could see all of these mixes and it hit me. I felt like I was in someone else's kitchen because all (laughs) of a sudden, all this food, it's just something that's completely foreign to you. And there is grief associated with that. Mm. You never think of it that way. And, And there was a wonderful book written by William J. Warden. And he had different steps to go through grief. And obviously, it was associated with the loss of our our loved ones. But there was to accept the reality of the loss. So when I first was on this diet, I went about four or five months before I started to feel good. And yet, every day, I could see my other family members, the food on their plate was what I used to eat. Mm -hmm. And there was no, no issue at all. But it was when I started to really, into four to five months, started to get my health back, my weight back. I'll tell you, one day, boy, did I see their plates. And it was (laughs) like a voice in in my mind. Oh, come on, you know, just a little bite of that. So you really have to accept that reality and realize, hey, come on, you're in a doubt. You want to be sick? You want to go on with your life, you know, and enjoy life? Uh, you know, to make that de- decision. And then there's also to really experience the pain of grief would be to experience the pain of this food loss. If you're in your own house, and again, you have other family members there, all you have to do is open up the refrigerator and you're going to see what you used to eat every day. You open up the cabinets, like we had, had to have s- separate shelves you know, where I put all my product and then their product was somewhere else. And even in the refrigerator, my containers were all labeled. You go out uh, to just the convenience store and there, you know, there's food in there. It mm. would be, I think, like if you had uh, the disease of alcoholism as well, you're surrounded by alcohol. Mm. You, you You're in your home and you're watching a TV show. Uh, there's a bar scene, maybe, or you go out to a movie, and what do you see? Whether you're a celiac, you see a a restaurant uh, scene in the movie, or if you have alcoholism, you will obviously see they'll be drinking. So it's in a yeah. sense, it's like that twenty four seven that you're surrounded. Whether it's the celiacs being surrounded with food, or someone with alcoholism, they're surrounded by the drink. You know that they the alcohol will be there. So if you don't really address these issues, you're going to be a very negative person, or you're going to basically go into denial, which basically is going to take your life, because you'll just keep, you know, consuming. Yeah. And like, how do you adjust to this environment? Yeah, which what you knew uh, is gone. So it's like, um, it's a, a, a continual cycle. And if you're an adult, thank God, you should be able to make that differentiation. But it's very sticky when you're, if you have children, because you can, <laughs> I sound like a tyrant, you can rein them in when they're little. But seriously, when they, there's that peer pressure, when they go out to school, or wherever they go, you know, they'll, they'll yeah. be made fun of. And there's even yeah. shows, Disney and different shows have actually had things that they think it's funny, you know, when they make fun of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so the book was published a few years ago, no? Uh, like a couple Yes. Years ago. And what kind of feedback uh, did you get either from those with celiac disease who already read the book or just others who are interested in the topic? If you can um, tell
0: us. There was the a there was a lot of uh, relatives. I think it was very interesting because they they finally could I think really understand and that's my point because okay. if if let's pretend you're a relative of mine yeah. and and we're going to obviously be at each other's houses or whatever. if you don't understand all the components of this, you could make something up for me and obviously it could have gluten in it yeah and, and you wouldn't even think of that. And even going out to a restaurant, there was this one restaurant, I won't mention it, but this was the most craziest thing I ever heard. And thank God the waitress told me, she said, do you realize they put pancake mix in the eggs because that will make them all more fluffier? Well, who would ever think you would think? And you know what I'm saying? That's just one illustration. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the book, I just want to talk about. the the publishing, your publishing journey. So this, this book was self-published,
0: correct? Yes. I had, unfortunately, oh my God, I had one a few years where I tried to do it, I guess the old way that you send out the query letters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you get to a certain point, it really isn't the best psychological (laughs) experience when you get letter after letter after letter Back and basically they were all the same form letter that it just doesn't really meet our uh, company's needs or yeah. or maybe this should be just a, a, a in a magazine mm. but th- there was no not one really bit of like personal uh, encouragement yeah. and um, so that's when I decided I'm going Amazon. yeah I know it's pretty straightforward. And uh, I can do this, and yet I can have it uh, presented to uh, a large market. Mm. And that was the reason that after all of those uh, letters, um, a rejection, yes, and then beyond that, there would have been the extra step of getting an agent, yeah, and the and before obviously I never had to take that step because I was never approved by uh, any big uh, publishing house. But that really made me think. Now wait a minute, who knows my book more than myself? Mm. And why should I have to have some agent? <laughs> and. They might think, oh, celiac disease, I know that disease, or whatever you're writing about. Obviously, they will never know it inside and out. They won't have the same passion. Okay. Uh, and I sort of decided that just, to me, didn't make any sense. So mm-hmm. in a sense, it was neat because I, I sort of avoided that. And that was another reason why I went rushing to Amazon. <laughs> Okay.
1: And how how did you market the book? How, you know, just, you know, I, in in this podcast we like to help aspiring authors as well give them tips. So where like you know, oh. we, I got to meet you th- through uh, um, a podcasting service and this is how I got to meet you but in in general, I'd like to know how you marketed, you know, you're marketing your book.
0: Well, that was the whole reason that I ended up being a guest on podcast shows. Okay. Because I thought, this is a medium, obviously a whole medium to actually reach listeners out there. Yeah. That might be intrigued, you know, by the concept. In this case, I'm writing about celiac disease or in my other book about the hidden history of woman a priest in the church, Catholic church. And so now if I could add that I am going to start my own podcast in the future. Oh, nice. Okay. Yes. Your Radical Truth.
1: Uh, focusing on the Catholic Church or on celiac disease? What, oh, on I'm both, on both.
0: But first I okay. will, uh, it'll be more on the, uh, the this hidden history within the Catholic Church's history that is based on biblical research. And that is so, I found find that intriguing because I love history. Yeah. And whether we look back to the Titanic, remember when that little submarine went down and all of a sudden there was the Titanic, and then we saw that debris field. Those were all objects of people back at that time. So in a sense, it's the same. Unfortunately, we don't have that sort of research going back into uh, first century uh, Israel, but we do in the sense of with biblical research, where through archaeology, that scientific study where they actually study uh, the monuments, and then there's the epigraphy where they study the inscriptions, and um, even to the various writings. Uh, and this is where you find, in a sense, these hidden skeletons that um, have never really been presented before. But I really believe as a woman, why shouldn't a woman deserve the truth? Why mm-hmm. shouldn't she understand that, yes, Back in the earliest, uh, early centuries of the Catholic Church, there were woman priests, there were woman deacons, there were woman apostles. Mm. And the most famous woman priest is Mary, Mother of God. And she was known as Mary Priest. And her uh, model was she was uh, the model for all priesthood in the Catholic Church.
1: And that's the focus of your second book, correct? Yes.
0: Scandal in the Shadows, meaning not scandal regarding Mary, meaning omission. Uh, The omission of Mother Mary. Back until 1927, Mary retained that title. And then it was in that year that the Catholic Church hierarchy took that title away from her. And of course, this is all sadly hidden within our church's records. Because my own mother, she lived in the 1920s, my grandmother. And yet, of course, they never heard of this. And they have um, an excerpt from um, a Roman official that's thanking someone in a newspaper that ran a very small article. And basically, they're saying, well, isn't it wonderful that you took care of this question in your article? And it's a question that Uh, Many people wouldn't be able to understand, and I'm thinking, well, yes, as a woman, how can you take away uh, Mary's title? And some people will think, well, wait a minute, that's Jesus's mother, so maybe this was like an honorary title. The Catholic Church, in order Mm. to call Mother Mary a a priest, they went back to Hebrews 7:26 and they said, isn't it fitting that we have such a high priest? And Mary, uh, there's a wonderful book by John Vingeards, The Ordination of a Woman in the Catholic Church. And he said Mary was a sacrificial priest. So what does that mean? That means that Mary presided on the altar. She as well did the consecration. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, you know, handing out uh, communion and, and ministry. Oh, wow. uh, to other people. So she's a real uh everyday woman. Um, She knew the toils of the time. I mean, they weren't a, a rich family. Seriously, she had to go out and get the water. She had to make the meals. That's, so that's I just love it because it's a whole other side to Mary. Yeah, that that's she, fascinating. It actually was a woman. Uh They even referred to her as a woman bishop too.
1: Oh, wow. That's, that's really fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading, um, to reading it as well. And, and this, this takes me back to an issue that you raised in your book, which is a big part of your book is the effect of celiac disease on your spiritual life. And especially when it comes to, to communion. And I know that some churches now, they offer gluten free uh, communion and do you think that would just solve the issue for people with celiac disease? Or what was your experience? And I, I would love to hear about your experience. Oh, when it comes- okay, Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because I know that's so hard. Uh, originally, back when I was first diagnosed, the Catholic Church just had the regular wheat host. Okay. They didn't have a low gluten-free communion. Okay. But this gastroenterologist that I mentioned, Dr. Alessio Fasano, said, even for individuals that are very sensitive that that low gluten communion cannot will not be acceptable for them. And I'm one of those individuals. and there were a group of ladies in our church that we just were ecstatic when we heard the Catholic Church was coming out with a low gluten communion host because now we could, you know, go up and receive communion and of course we we all got sick after we we you know took that uh, communion host because it just for our own bodies that was just uh, t- too much and that is why um this is like uh to me it's like a hidden issue the church has come out with that low gluten communion host and i believe that was back in about 2003 or 4 yeah. And uh, the issue is um, all taken care of. And I was very lucky. I had a priest from the very beginning. Uh, there was a little write-up write in the New England Journal of, uh, of Medicine. So I gave him that. And then he allowed me uh, to put a pix. It's a little round uh, container that you carry host in. Like, if whether you're a priest or a Eucharistic minister to take host to people that are sick, you know, in their homes, uh, hospitals. He allowed me to put that up on the altar and put a gluten-free food in there. And then, of course, at the consecration, that was changed. And if I could be the devil's advocate, when you think of it, even though there's a priest up there in the name of Jesus, who is giving him the power to do that? It's Jesus so in the sense of when the priest does that consecration over his um, communion um, dish there, and as well, if any other Eucharistic ministers, uh, there would be other pixels that the normal host would go in. It's Jesus that's making that determination. And this priest was, it was just wonderful. He said, would Jesus turn and walk away from you because you have an autoimmune disease? would he give you something that would harm your body? So I was very lucky for years. I had several priests that did that. Then suddenly, back about three years ago, there was a priest that came in, an associate priest, and for five months, everything was hunky-dory. And all of a sudden, in December, he said, Peg, I can no longer give you your gluten-free communion host. And I mean, I was taken back. I said, what? He said, no, I, I just, I can't do that anymore. And I said, well, who put you up to this? I mean, because I figured if a priest is, everything is fine. And then we come to this one week in December, five years later, and he wouldn't tell me. And I said, Father, and then he says, I don't know you. I said, Father, I said, you've only been giving me this for five months. And the Monsignor, he certainly knows me. He's been doing the same thing. So I said, Father, we're going to end this discussion here, because before we both say whatever. So this was on a Saturday. So I called directory on Monday and I got a call back in my house on Tuesday. And I said, Father, let's just cut to the chase. (laughs) I said, this is my spiritual food. And I said, you're basically letting me twist out here in the wind. And you've taken away my only opportunity to receive my spiritual food. I said, I deserve to know who made this determination, uh, you know, that's causing you to say now that you can't give me my communion? And he, oh, 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 this and that. And finally, he said, well, it's me. I said, what? (laughs) I mean, I was just floored. He said, yes. He said, my conscience, I cannot do this. And I said, wait a minute. I said, Father, canon law was not created by Jesus. Canon law is church law. And I said, What did Jesus do? Jesus fed the poor. Jesus cured the sick. And I said, There's no way that I will understand why your conscience is bothered. You are acting in the name of Jesus. You should be helping me to be able to retain my opportunity to get weekly communion. No, he couldn't. So, so then I. No, yeah he wouldn't, he wouldn't explain. It was just that it bothered his conscience because it was the canon law issue of breaking, not Jesus's law, but church law. So then of course I went to the Monsignor and I asked him and I said, Monsignor, I said, you know, when I grew up in the fifties, I said, the Monsignor was in charge at the church. I mean, seriously, you wouldn't have an associate pastor making a move like this. So I said, what are you going to do? He just looked at me, turned his back, and just walked away from me. So, uh, I mean, that I can't even explain it. Uh, That really hurt me. Because here, I've been in the Catholic Church since I've been a little girl in the 50s. And I still, it's like a bad dream. I mean, I'm trying to understand. I did not commit mortal sin, sin. I came down with an autoimmune disease. And that's the slap in the face that I get that, you know, I no longer can receive um, communion. And again, this just is not right. I mean, how is this? Our Catholic church is a sacramental church. And we basically live through that sacramental church and that we are able to a communion time to be able to receive Jesus. Have, have you thought about changing churches?
1: Maybe it was your local church and and another church would be more open to that.
0: I know there would be other denominations, yes. But to me, um, maybe it's because I'm Irish, but it's the principle that this is wrong. And when we had Vatican II, there was um, different constitutions. And there was one actually on the laity. And it said that we as lay people have the right to speak out. Uh, on matters of importance. Well, if this isn't an important matter, this this just isn't right. And it takes me back when I first was diagnosed back in the 80s. In Boston, there was an article where a little five-year-old girl had celiac disease, and her parents went to a church, and thank God the priest was very open, and she was getting her communion. Well, someone, of course, complained to the chancery, and then when they heard that, that's a sacramental aberration, and you can't, you just can't do that. So, of course, they did leave and went to another uh, denomination, and Mm -hmm. she's being taken care of. But I feel as an adult, Jesus understands my predicament, and I pray to Jesus, uh, but I and. And on the other hand, I'm just not gonna turn around and walk away from this because this is something that is just completely wrong. What,
1: so what hap- what what's going on now? You cannot take communion now? You stop Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm not I'm not getting uh any communion.
1: Okay, and how how does that affect you spiritually, the fact that you're not getting your spiritual food?
0: Well, in a sense, I think I'm closer to Jesus because I I've actually had a separate in the sense from I go to other churches, okay. you know, um, uh, because I do love, I do love the Catholic church and I, I want to hear the word of God, but as far as the spiritual end of it, that is my prayer okay. with Jesus because what used to be the most spiritual part of going up, uh, you know, in receiving communion is it's gone. Okay.
1: So in, in terms of the book, has anyone from the Catholic church or from your church read it and, um, was there any reaction? Because uh, you're being very vocal about this. And I'm, I'm sure maybe it might rub people the wrong way. And
0: Well, there was uh, one woman from church was in her 80s. And she always came across to, as a very open-minded woman. So okay. I thought, oh, this will be neat. It was around Christmas time. And okay. I'll send her the book. You know, as a gift. Okay. Wow. Well, I got a phone call. Peggy, what is this? And at first I thought maybe she was offended by the title, Scandal in the Shadows, the original priest, Mother Mary. And I said, I just want to let you know that that scandal means omission. Okay, The omission of the Catholic Church from letting everyone know that Mary was a woman priest. And, you know, I was so excited because I thought, who would more be the best model for a woman in the Catholic Church than Mother Mary? But unfortunately, this woman was, oh, she was just so upset. And I have to tell you, when I read that John Rinsgaard's book, there's a section, a chapter on Mary, and in there, when he was describing Mary as a real priest, I threw the book up in the air. And then I had to pick it up, and I had to reread it, because uh. I thought that I really see what I saw, and then it was then this excitement, this joy really dissipated for me, because then I had the awful realization that I had been betrayed by my own church. And after a few weeks, I thought, I got to get out of this awful feeling. And I thought, well, who better to foul than Jesus? He spoke out against the authority types of his time. And now I have this wonderful news that Mary, Mother of God, is a woman priest. So that really, um, in a sense, ignited me that I wanted to get the word out, not only to women here in the U.S., but as well, uh, whether it's in Ireland, uh, uh, Australia, rather, the Philippines, uh, Africa, Asia. Asia? Did
1: you get any positive responses from people who read any of your books? Um, on, do you think there is there is hope for, for change within the Catholic Church when, when it comes to that issue specifically? Um,
0: it's going to take a long time because people really have to, uh, particularly related to Scandal in the Shadow about Mother Mary, you have all these women, sadly, within our Catholic Church that have no idea of a real, proven from biblical research of Mother Mary's other side. So when I go out picketing, obviously I'm seen in a sense like a pariah. And mm. you know, people will some people really will be very vocal and and tell me, um, you don't belong in this church, you're a liar, you know, and mm. uh you're you're a hypocrite, you're a heathen, go to that church a few blocks away and It's sad because they're defending their faith just as much as I love the Catholic Church. But they miss this key finding. You know, when we're in our Catholic Church, when you think of it, think of like, say, the left side of pews in the church, the right side. On the right side, for men, since the time they've been little boys, they've had the role models of priests. That's Mm -hmm. a religious heritage to them to follow. Over here on the left side, okay. Well, we had Mary, but we never knew she was a woman priest, and then there was Mary Magdala. But really, where was the weekly experience of seeing a woman whether uh, giving the homily, uh, whether you know, doing the consecration? We don't have role models like that, so there's this whole religious heritage that's completely. Uh, wiped out for any woman in the church. And I think for mothers and grandmothers, you should really be concerned. A future church did a survey and they found that millennial women today are more often to be leaving the church because they have had it with being lied to, and they just don't feel their spirituality is being met because if they were baptized, just as I was baptized, you were, um, if you're in the Catholic faith, we're baptized the same as little baby boys. It's the same prayers. It's the same anointing. That means we're supposed to be equal in this church. And of course, we're not equal because if we get the call that we want to be a woman priest, well, obviously, sadly, within the Catholic church, forget that. And I don't know if you ever heard of uh, the Pope has his own commission. It's called the Pontifical Biblical Commission. Back in 1976, they looked at the question of woman's ordination in our church. And what did they emphatically say? They said there is no biblical reason why woman can't be priest. Well, hello, that was 19. 19- 76. So, why are we still, uh, in a sense, debating this issue of women even being priests? And then you've probably heard over in Rome, they've had these different uh, councils on women being deacons. Were they ever deacons? Back in 1974, it was proven from three Greek studies women were on the altar in a church. In front of a bishop, the same wording was said. The bishop uh, prayed over them, placing hands on them, and they each received a stow. They each received the cup to drink from. Yes, and women were emphatically called deaconesses. So why in 2016, if the church would have only filed what they found back in 74, there never would have been the need to reconvene in 2016 these commissions now if women were deacons it is just so sad because the hierarchy is definitely that evidence is right there hmm. and they're not following it and i think hopefully it's like a grassroots effort i'm trying to uh have the listeners if they hear this spread it to their family and friends and relatives because why shouldn't women at minimum, at least be told the truth, this wonderful truth. Mm, and yep. they should be up there. They should be able to be a woman priest. There were woman priest. And even, don't get me started, Natasha, they were actually more woman apostles. We heard Jesus sent out the 12 men apostles, period. But there was this researcher, uh, Ida Ramley, and she found this concept of apostleship. Okay, what does that mean? Who's an apostle? Anyone that's sent out by the divine one, that Jesus, or the particular community. And then when you get into biblical research, you start finding names of other woman apostles aside from Mary Magdala. Yeah. So that this is really
1: fascinating. So in, in terms of your future plans, so now you have the two books and both of them, um, you know, at least the first one, you know, delve into the, the issue of your faith in the Catholic Church. The second one is focused completely on the Catholic Church. What's your third book going to be about? Is it you're fil- following the same trajectory?
0: or um, Yes, I want to write a third book, but I, I still... Um... I'm just sort of, I know it's coming, but I really haven't finalized it. Okay. So you- I leave everyone <laughs> in suspense. <laughs> <laughs> ah, <that's
1: okay. laughs> so just- well, any, any final words you want to talk to, you know, tell the listeners um, about whether it's the publishing journey, whether about... Uh, recognizing, um, you know, the importance of uh, f- food and diet when it comes to someone who with celiac disease or the importance of female priesthood in the Catholic Church? Because we, we discussed different topics. Yes, so.
0: those are all very high uh, things of importance. So I really want you to remember, this is biblical research. It's not some type of a folly on my part. But okay. getting back to writing a book for the um, authors that are new, don't get so taken by thinking, oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. Because in my case, I I went, I avoided what I thought. And now this is, shouldn't be for everyone. But really, personally, I'm saying what I found the best was to go to Amazon uh, forget the agent, and then more importantly, just write from your heart. I mean, you're writing this topic, obviously, because no matter who the writer is, there, there's something maybe in there that's very personal to you, something that you want to uh, expand the readers with a new knowledge, and in this case, especially with the Catholic Church, that there were women priests. So, um, just go along and you're the best person again. You're the best publicity and get into podcasting because as far as I can see, that really, in a sense, gives you uh, more visibility. Uh, try that and hopefully that will help you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been no, wonderful. thank you. For me, I learned a lot. Um, for me, what I'm taking out of this is I'm, I'm going to be extra sensitive to anyone who has Food sensitivities. I'm, I'm not going to ever say just one small bite. <laughs> you'll be okay. <laughs> I think that's, that's really important. And, and two, I'm just recognizing how this affects your faith as well. You know, like you, you're uh, uh, a Catholic and, and you, you believe in your faith and, 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 um, just how you have to deal with that. It's, you know, something to really to think about. And I hope someday that the issues that you raise in both of these books can be, uh, you know, resolved and uh, we'll find a solution eventually. Thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. It uh, was a pleasure. Thank you, uh, Natasha. Uh, And best of luck with your third mysterious mystery book that we're not supposed to talk (laughs) about. And for anyone who's listening or watching, thank you again for, um, uh, you know, uh, hanging until here and uh, listening to another episode of Read and Write with Natasha. And until we meet again.